Good morning, everyone. How many, how many have bought something thinking it was genuine and then discovering it wasn't? Anyone here? How did that make you feel? You feel cheated, don't you? I remember seeing one of those, you know, those programs, um, Antique Roadshow, and uh, they they were doing it in this house. It was owned by the Queen, and the Queen and Prince Philip were there, and they were just showing little knickknacks, and the Queen was showing this particular one, things like that, and they were looking at it, and just after they'd gone, they were talking about all these different articles, and he said, actually, this little piece here, I didn't have the heart to tell Her Majesty, it was actually a fake. <laughs> Instead of being worth... I don't know, three or four thousand pounds was actually only worth about 120 or something or other pounds. But there is something about genuineness and something that isn't. I remember years ago when um, Sandra and I were helping out with a, a children's ministry, and, and we did, or children's church, I should say, and we made this cake, you know, those usual sort of things that you do, and we made this beautiful chocolate cake with beautiful thick icing on the outside. And then we made an imitation one made of compost with worms and all sorts of things, and we iced it exactly the same. Now, the kids got the lesson, no problem at all, and they devoured the genuine cake. Now, that says something. When something is genuine, people will devour it. However, we put the cake, the imitation one, on the bench, and as we were cleaning up, one of the adults came along who had been on duty without thinking, oh, wow, that looks good. And while no one was looking, helped himself to a rather large piece. Now, I won't say exactly what he said <laughs> or repeat what he did. <laughs> but there's something about when something is not genuine, but it looks like it from the outside, that it really stinks like that cake did. It looked the part, but it wasn't genuine. And it left a horrible taste in the mouth, literally. Some of those worms, I don't know whether half of them were working <laughs> or what. But it goes two ways, because God is looking for genuine people who have a heart after him. Are we creating imitations or people who genuinely have a heart after him? Because that stinks as well if it's not genuine in his sight. But everything comes down to pressure. You find out if something is genuine through pressure. And I've called this message the pressure test. Who wants to be pressured? We don't like it, do we? But out of the times of pressure are the times when we grow and we expand because of what he is doing in us. And what is not of him suddenly rises to the surface so he can deal with it and remove it from us if we allow him. Sandra and I came to The Rock, I think it was about 2010. So we've been part of this family really for about five years. Man, time goes very, very quickly. But when we first came, there was a real tension in the air, if you like, because suddenly the truth was being declared. Bit by bit, Greg was getting the confidence to actually speak out what God had genuinely laid upon his heart. Guess what? A lot of it didn't go down too well. Because people like that which is not genuine better than what is the truth. And people reacted in a lot of different ways. I remember, I can't remember how many people were in the church at the time when we came, whether it was 600, 700, 800, I don't know. But a lot of them, a lot of people left. When it, over the time it was, uh, it was spoken forth. Now, don't hear me, um, please hear me. There were people that left genuinely because uh, they were prayed out and, and uh, they, God was calling them elsewhere, and that's fine. But there are a lot of people that just suddenly disappeared, bang, 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 or got offended or took out others with them because they couldn't handle the truth. Anyway, Whenever change is afoot, there is a temptation in leadership to actually step in and steady the boat. We've got to win them back. We'll have to do another resurrector program. We'll have to do this or that to try and get people back. But how do you know? Actually, sometimes we've got to learn to let things 
go and let God do it. Because whenever God turns up, suddenly everything is upside down. It's messy. It feels like it's uncontrollable. And that's exactly what God has been doing. But the temptation is for us to step in and take over. However, when you begin to see the true state of the church through apostolic and prophetic eyes, you begin to see really how much the church around the world has wandered from the truth and the way God designed church to truly be. Hence why God is shaking his church throughout the world, and the rock is no exception, because we built superficial exteriors upon crumbling foundations. But it took his love and his truth to expose it. It also takes a man with an apostolic anointing to have the courage and the strength to stand up and allow God to take back his church and for us to let it go. You see, pastors and teachers and evangelists often struggle with that because they're people-orientated. That's how they see things. It's how they're wired. And many cases will either try and win back the sheep or shelter them from the changes required. And that's why we need the apostolic and the prophetic to come in and to be part of the body because then it brings the heavenly perspective about what he's doing so that the pastors and teachers and evangelists can come under that and grow in that and help the people to go in that journey. It's so important. Now, I'm not an apostle and I'm not a, a prophet at all. But when I came underneath the apostolic and the prophetic anointing, boy, it changed the way I saw things. You see, we're not all called to be apostles, right? But we are called to be apostolic. And that's so important. God is calling us to be able to rise up and to be able to be genuine by allowing him to change us from the inside out. Can we let those things go? The church, as we know, is in danger of collapse. And it will be evident when the pressure comes on who will stand and who will fall away. God's heart is to restore his church, is it not? Because it's his, it's not ours. He designed it. But how many know he's got to shake it in order for that which is of him will stand and that which isn't will fall away. But it requires an apostolic people who will allow it to happen. And as you've heard in my testimonies a number of times, God laid the rock on my heart well before we came here. I forget exactly how that happened, but it was about, I suppose, six months before we came. And my son had said something about there was something happening in the rock and something leapt in here. I didn't know exactly what was going on, but something leapt in here. And I prayed solidly for three months. And the thing is, as I prayed, I knew God was doing something very significant in this place. But I also knew that it was going to be very, very difficult and that people would leave as the upheaval took place. But it had to come. And as you know, gradually later on, God led us here to be part of us, and particularly to support Greg, because I knew that it was not going to be easy. And I praise God for Greg and the apostolic anointing that is on his life. It's not recognized a lot. But we need the apostolic and the prophetic in the church because they are the ones that will stand up and not waver When the pressure comes, but they will stand and run the race. They will stand and do the course and allow us to walk together as a family through that. And that's why we need it. Let's not take him for granted, amen? And when we arrived, we could feel the tension in this place. You could feel the battle lines being drawn and all the different things going on. But as the truth was declared it upset a lot of people. However, in 2010 onwards, between 2010 and 2012, we received a lot of encouraging words from the Lord. It's incredible. And it's all about change, how God was uprooting things and changing things, exactly what's being preached. And yet people heard it and they walked away. But even in our darkest hour, God was encouraging us to carry on the path. And yet everything has to be tested. 
What man builds was only for now, but what God builds is for eternity. And what we see is so important. If we see in the natural, with our, uh, whether we see in the natural or in the spiritual, it will determine how far we proceed to hold on to these words. Do we believe and hold on to what God said, or do we just look with our natural eyes and say, oh gosh, there's people leaving, there's this and that happening. What will we see? Now, I, w- I want to just play a clip from David McCracken. Just, to, just there's two parts of this, but I just want to listen to the first part. And because there's something really special about what he brought in 2010. And I've known uh, David McCracken, I suppose, not personally. I've met him a couple of times and spoken to him. But I've heard him, I suppose, over the last 10 years, bits and pieces of, of what he's been saying. But I remember hearing a prophecy that he spoke over one particular person. I thought, what? It doesn't even make sense. And yet six months later, bang, 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 everything that he prophesied happened. He's a very accurate uh, prophet. And I want you to hear these words and listen to them very, very carefully. Um, I I saw one of those pictures and I'm just going to refer to it exactly as I saw it. Um, I saw Greg and Danielle, right? Um, I saw um, you were looking at this prize and uh, this thing of great price and value and uh, there was a large thorn bush uh, between where you were standing uh, and that incredible prize and I saw various people trying to push their way through the thorn bush. And, of course, they got cut and stuff, and they quit because, ouch. Yeah, it wasn't a... But when, then I saw the Spirit of the Lord come on you. And I saw you go up. And instead of trying to push it aside or hack at it, whatever, you just carefully and very skillfully seemed to untangle the thorns. And, and it took a lot of patience and care and... Oh, God help us, you know, and, and, and sensitivity, but eventually you're able to unravel it and pull those thorns out until there was a gap and you went through and you pursued the prize. So I, I just pray that that picture will mean something to you. It's amazing. And there's a, the second part, if you read it in the booklet, it's just amazing about the well and how God is restoring this well, which is us. Wow, what a word. Inside is so impressive. What are we looking at? There's a great big thorn bush. It's like a wall between us and the prize. But sometimes our eyes can get fixed on the thorn bush that we can't see beyond that. What can we see? So what is the thorn bush possibly? Well, a thorn bush can represent a number of things. Man-made systems that we've built up over the years. It can be barriers, old mindsets, old wineskins. It can be our giftings or ministries that have become idols. It can become our individualistic mindsets or based on self. It can be jealousy. It can be pride. It can be toil. It can be religion which is dead. It can be what's comfortable and easy. It can be our reputations and how others see us and trying to hide it. It can be offenses. It can be all sorts of things that we've built up. And, of course, what we've done is we've covered it over because some thorn bushes can actually look quite attractive. Roses have beautiful flowers on it. It has a beautiful scent. But, boy, as I found out when I was gardening Back into, I think it was January, early January, I was just going past the rose bush, and I'm, uh, I'm sure it just came out and got me. I ended up with two thorn bush uh, barbs in here. It was painful, but it smelt and looked beautiful. And we can build it up, and we can make it look nice and cover it over and sell it and, and, and do all sorts of things for it, and we call that church. 
pretty horrifying when you think of it. But sometimes, you know, we've replaced God with all sorts of different things. We've replaced him with programs. But what would it be like if he was the only one left? If there was no war? What would it be like? And of course, when you start touching some of those thorn bushes, all sorts of things come out. Even the nicest person. It can be all full of smiles when you touch something, when God touches something, real, all sorts of things can come out. I'm talking about myself here too. Because when you allow God to really start taking in here, you know how protective I am of my patch? We all can be. But we cover it up and we call it church. But God is doing something more than that. When you've seen something that is far greater than anything man can build, you long for what is genuine and lasts for eternity. And when you begin to have a revelation of him, the walls and the barriers that we've created are nothing in comparison. In fact, the walls look quite grotesque and ugly. You can't go back to it because you long for him and for what he is doing. And unless we see the wall of thorns for what it really is, we will always long for that instead. How do I know? You've just got to start touching that wall, and then you know. So what would it be like if the wall was removed? Have you ever thought about that? Suddenly there's only you and him, or us and him. Man, you wouldn't need a music team, even though they're beautifully this morning, because suddenly worship would just flow out of you. There would be no stopping it. It would just, it would just flow out, praise and worship. It didn't matter whether you could sing in tune or would, couldn't sing in tune. There would be no blockages. You wouldn't need entertainment. Our kids or our youth group wouldn't need entertainment because he is here, and they'd be hanging off him. I love what Andrea said this morning about the little kids hanging around him. They wouldn't need to be entertained because he is everything. I mean, remember Russell Crowe in The Gladiator. Are you not entertained? People were looking for entertainment, and people in the church are still looking for entertainment instead of him. Man, we wouldn't need counselors because there would be wholeness suddenly in his presence. Gosh, we wouldn't need um, volunteers. I mean, volunteers would just happen. It would happen because people were wanting to give. And it wouldn't be out of their own strength and out of their own toil and, and getting worn out because suddenly it's out of, out of the innermost being and life comes. Boy. You wouldn't even need teachers. And some people would say, amen. <laughs> because suddenly, you know, you understand because he's around you. There would be love. I mean, you can go on and on and on. What would it be like if that wall wasn't there? And yet we're so attached to it. Why? Because often it's because we don't really know him and because we're scared to let it go. Because if we truly knew him, perfect love casts out all fear. And I'm talking about myself here. Because I'm as much tangled in that as anybody else. But God is saying, let it go. Are we a people that can let it go and let him be? Who wants the wall? Who wants him? Yeah. That's what God is looking for. And believe you me, I'm not trying to dishonor what has gone before and what people have poured a lot of hours into and things like that. I honor those people because I think they've done a great job. But sometimes what's happened now is that we've become so attached to what man has built that that's become a blockage in getting to know him. So I'm not putting those people down, hear me, hear in my heart. But a lot of the things that we've built, we've now, we hold on to that rather than to him. And God is saying, I want your hearts back. 
let it go. Smith, um, Smith Wigglesworth, he was an amazing preacher. And he used to heal and raise the dead and do all sorts of things. But he realized towards the end of his ministry, they didn't want God. They just wanted the healings. They wanted the, the show. They wanted the spectacular things going on. But they didn't want him. And he said, God, take me out of the way. I'm becoming a stumbling block to them. That was his heart. What's our heart like? But it takes him to lead us through it and to untangle that mess. It's so entwined. And some people have tried to hack at it and got the solution and gone because of that. But it takes an apostolic and prophetic mindset to be able to untangle those thorns and take some of those thorns out to provide a way through to him. That's why we need the apostolic and the prophetic in the church. It has to be God leading us every way, guiding us through. But it takes a people of courage and character who will stay the course and not give in to the pressure to abort the process and settle for that which is comfortable and acceptable. So can we allow God to do that in our own hearts and lives? We can so easily look at a pretend wall up there, but can we look at what's the wall in our heart? The great prize is who? Him. One day there will only be him. We won't have the music. We won't have, well, we'll have music up there, but we won't have all these props that we're so used to leaning on. It will be him. And God wants to experience that now. Not in eternity, but now. However, when God touches something, how many people know that it gets messy? And sometimes it's not easy because we want to step in and steady the ship. Can we allow a bit of mess to go around? When they did the sacrifices, it was messy. A lot of blood, all sorts of stuff going out there. Can we let him do it his way? And the pressure, the refining fire comes on. This morning, I just want to briefly look at a character who also faced pressure, who also went through different things. And he was faced with a choice of actually going with the pressure of what man said or with steadying the ship or going with what God said. And he had a choice to make. I wonder if we could just go to First Samuel chapter 13. Verse 1. That's First Samuel 13, verse 1. It says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. If you go down to um, verse 3. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard it. And then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the, all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it and said Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines. Oops, there's a bit of a discrepancy there, don't you think? Jonathan attacked it, but Saul gets the credit. Reveals something in his heart there. That Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines, and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, uh, uh, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in the multitude. And they came up and, uh, and encamped at Mishmash in the east of beth Aven. And when the men of Israel saw, they were in danger, for the people were distressed. Then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and pits, and some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad in Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring the, a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me, and I will offer. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. Verse 11, And Samuel said, What have you done? 
And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come with me, or come within the appointed time, and that the Philistines had gathered together at Mishmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down with me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord sought for himself a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord had commanded you. It says in that last verse that Saul, when he counted up the men that were left, was only about 600 men. When looking at that, Saul had started off pretty well okay. For the first couple of years, things had been going pretty well. He'd had a couple of victories under his belt. He was still very popular. Uh, men came when he called. And things seemed okay, but nothing had been tested. Then he chose for himself 3,000 choice-looking men. Now, how many know that you know you can choose people with great talents? You can choose people that look the part but you'll only, if, only know if they are genuine when the pressure comes on. They all looked the part. They had the charisma. They could have wooed an audience. They could have done everything. It says in the last days that many will fall away, that the love of many will grow cold. Why? Because they've built their Christian walk on the superficial and on the fleshy not on the revelation of Christ. So when the flesh is not satisfied anymore, where will they turn? Most people default to what they know, what's really inside of them. And time is running out. And we as elders and as we are leadership, there's a cry in our heart for all of you to know him so that he is genuine and real in your heart. So that when the times of shaking do come, you can stand. That you will not fall away. That you will not crumble. Hence why this is being shaken up this place. And it feels uncomfortable. You've tasted nothing yet when genuine pressure comes. What will it really be like? What's more, you're in our hearts. You know, we pray for you. Our hearts are toward you, not against you. And we pray that you will last the distance, that you will connect and know him. But it will get quite messy. And God has warned us. David McCracken said, you know, when transition is embraced, it's empowering. For, for Saul, the test came sooner than later. How many people know the Philistine army? That was a big thing, 30,000 chariots. That's a traffic jam. That's a lot of, you know, but there's all this huge thing out there. Saul goes to Gilgal, that's where he's called, and he was to wait for Samuel for the appointed time, seven days. However, every day they waited, the situation grew worse. When people saw the huge army out there and saw the danger that they were in, they became distressed. And when people are under pressure, People do all sorts of crazy things. As we hear, they, how, they, how did they cope? Well, some, some hid in caves, some in thickets, some in rocks, some in holes and pits. I was trying to work out the difference between a hole and a pit. Holes are really what we fall into, and pits are what we dig for others to fall into. Well, that's what I thought anyway. <laughs> but when the pressure is on, you get people reacting in so many different ways. Some even crossed back over the Jordan where it was safe. Going back to the Egypt, back the track that way. Man, what do you long for? That's where the entertainment is. By the time Samuel arrives, Saul had only 600 men left. Can I ask you, what happened to the 3,000? Where were they? When the pressure came on, you suddenly really discover what's really inside of you. 
Well, Saul sounded the trumpet, and so far, so good. People uh, came to him, but when they saw the danger, they split. There's always a lot of yes, yes, yes sort of people. And when the victory starts to come on again, suddenly people will come out of nowhere and join on the end. The people all responded. But Saul had a problem. See, on one side over here, he had the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord to him was to wait. But over here, but what I can see is a mess. But the word of the Lord to him was to wait. But over here, come on, face the facts. This is a huge enemy. We are in trouble. But the word of the Lord was to wait. But over here, don't the people believe in me anymore? Why are they doing this to me? Sometimes it can become very personal. But the word of the Lord was to, I can't hear. The word of the Lord was to wait. But my reputation is in tatters. But the word of the Lord was to wait. But I have to do something. This people is looking to me for the answers. Do you feel the pressure that's on them? A lot, of, a lot of churches feel that pressure. They're looking for me to do something. But the word of the Lord was to wait. Give me a torch, someone. I'll perform the offering and I'll get us back on track. But the word of the Lord was to wait. Very interesting. How many times are we more likely to be in this camp? But the word of the Lord says, wait. You know how many times in the word of God it talks about waiting upon the Lord? Man, there's heaps of, heaps and heaps of scriptures on waiting upon the Lord. And it's something we've lost in, the, in these generations. Each successive generation, the pace gets quicker and quicker and quicker. You have less time for anything else. And yet we've got everything at our fingertips. How can that be? And yet God is saying, I want you to wait. Not necessarily to talk or do anything, but simply to wait in his presence. Not with a shopping list or anything, just simply wait in his presence. Just recently, uh, I've had had a lot of problems with my health. And uh, uh, had an infection that uh, left me really quite... Um, in a difficult position, if you like. And the last six weeks, a lot of the time, I've had to, the only time I can get relief from pain or discomfort is by lying down. And it's been very, very difficult because I'm a guy that likes to get on and do things. Sandra will tell you on a Saturday morning, I'm up. I want to get things done. I want to get things accomplished. But over those six weeks, there were times when I couldn't do anything but lie down. And I really sense God was saying to me, I want you to wait. And it's a great time. It was a great time of just sitting there. It wasn't about my health so much. It was more about what he was doing in here. And you can come into a place of rest when you wait upon him. And that's what God wants us to do. But we fill our hearts and lives with so many other things. Can we actually take the time to wait upon him. As soon as Saul had finished the sacrifice, which was totally unlawful to do, Samuel turns up. And Samuel says to him, what have you done? Now look at the list of excuses very quickly. When I saw the people scattered from me, well, that revealed a heart, another heart position, didn't it? The people were not his. They belonged to the Lord. He was appointed to lead them. Where are we leading people to? Are we leading people to greed? Are we leading them to a ministry? Are we leading them to leadership? Are we leading them to a program? What are we leading people to? We have to be leading them to you, to him. Not to ourselves. He is the only one. 
I love that song this morning. He's my one desire. And you get all sorts of ministers. What do they boast about? Numbers. How many are in your church? How many are not? Numbers is just, you know, it's not even a kingdom mindset. God is purely looking for a people whose hearts are after him, whose hearts are for him. Sometimes ministers will go to extraordinary lengths because of the pressure that they're under, and they will often trade out the truth for what appeals to the flesh. You see, the truth is not attractive. The truth will disturb. The truth will uproot. The truth will turn things over. But he always does it in love, love and truth. But are we allowed, can we allow him to do that? We see people leaving and all sorts of things happen. And the temptation is to step in and do what the, the, the demands are. A lot of ministers feel that. Unless you change this, I'm going. Unless you do that, or if you do that. And so sometimes you'll get ministers that will actually come underneath that rather than standing up and walking what God has shown. And I praise God. That's why you need the apostolic and the prophetic and the house of God today to keep it true on track. The second excuse that he had was that you did not come when you, in the appointed time. You did not come. You did not support me. You did not help me. We can so easily deflect. When God is doing something in our lives, we can suddenly deflect it back at somebody else. We can blame that person or that person or that system or this and that let me down. But actually God is doing something in here. Can we take ownership of it? Actually, Saul, Samuel was looking for a repentant heart. And when things are being turned upside down, he's looking for a heart response. Are we prepared to say, Lord, I repent and I'm sorry. I want you to have this. So easy to blame someone else. And we can get so familiar with what we hear. Oh, it's just Clay, it's just Greg, it's just this or that. But you know there's such a richness in this place and the messages that go forth. We've had a number of friends from Auckland and Christchurch come and they've come to church on the Sunday and they're absolutely blown away by what they've heard. And they've said to me, we've never heard this before. Why is this not being preached in our church? Because their church is so focused on self, on developing your gift and your destiny and your purpose. And it goes over and over those things. And yet we're talking about the truth here. My mother, who's 86 years old, I, I did download a whole lot of messages here and I gave it to her. And uh, she's been listening to them. And boy, she's been cut to the quick. She said, I've been a Christian all these years and suddenly I hear this and it's cut me right here. I thought I, was, I, thought I knew God, but suddenly I'm realizing I've hardly scratched the surface. She's 86 years old. But God's starting to change you. But somehow we can sit under these messages and hear them and hear them and hear them and it can have no effect at all. And yet there's such a richness in this place. If we were to grab hold of just a portion of it, we would be changed people. What is God really saying? The Philistines, well, the next thing, third one, the third excuse was the Philistines had gathered together at Mishmash. We were their eyes, heavenly or earthly. Saul's focused on everything else around him. He was focused on the enemy coming up. He was focused on the people that were leaving. He was focused on, on uh, Samuel being late. There was all sorts of things going on around him. And we can get crowded out by everything around us. That's why it's so important to wait for the Lord. David was in a place in Ziglag with people, his best friends out there thinking of stoning him. He's waiting quietly before the Lord. And God gives him a peace and a strategy to know how to go forward. 
No matter the situation we're in, we can be waiting upon the Lord rather than jumping in and trying to steady the boat. They became distractions that began to overwhelm him and as a result eroded the little faith that he had and began to make rash decisions. In other words, he defaulted to what he could do. And that's our big temptation. What can I do? Instead of letting God do what he can do. We see everything suddenly being turned upside down and it feels uncomfortable. As our, all our previous reference points are now either gone or shifted. And our hearts begin to ache for the idols that we once leaned on for support. We often struggle with it because our roots are still in them. Sometimes God's saying, let them go. So that you really begin to know him. You know, one of the prophecies, I'm not sure who said it, but it's in that little booklet, it said, God will dismantle and re-establish Greg's and the Rock's understanding on how he builds his church. That was April 2010. I think it was before we came. The next excuse was this. They will attack us and we haven't made any supplication to the Lord. You see, it sounds very religious and godly, but we can disguise our mistakes by passing it off as a godly act. But God is looking for obedience. Oh, sorry, God is looking for obedience rather than sacrifice. And we can do a lot of religious stuff. We can do a lot of stuff on the outward, and yet the inward is not being moved at all. But the pressure exposes the heart positions. After all, you know what he's doing? God is dismantling us. Not one of us is exempt. The day you gave your life to Christ, if you truly gave your life to Christ, you put your hand up to be dismantled so that he can actually do a genuine work in you. But he redefines everything. He reestablishes and puts it all back together his way. And the last excuse was this. I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. It sounds commendable. And in most cases, we would have gone up to Saul and shaken his hand and congratulated him for getting the job done. Wouldn't we? Because when our eyes are on the natural, we think it has to be outworked that way. But God's going a lot deeper than that. But he missed it. And there's something in all of us that feels compelled just like he did, to do something. When God is saying, let it go. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandments of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. And the Lord has sought for him a, himself a man after his own heart. And that's what God is looking for, a people after his own heart. If Saul had only just waited, it would have been a different scenario. If we had just waited, what would it be like in us? What did Saul miss? What was standing right in front of Saul that can help us too? What was it that Saul it was standing right in front of him? You know what it was? He was called to a place called Gilgal. What's so significant about Gilgal? Well, approximately three to four hundred years earlier, Joshua crossed the Jordan River. And as they crossed it, God got them to camp at this place. And it's interesting, God named it Gilgal. Man didn't name it, God named it. And he asked for all the sons of Israel to be circumcised. Interesting, all the sons. Are we all as a family? If God is going to circumcise our hearts, he wants to do it to all of us, not just a few, but to all of us. So that we go forth as a family. Man's intellect's way of thinking said this is a bad move because they crossed over the Jordan. 
Jericho was only a stone's throw away. And yet he's asking them to be circumcised. You're basically taking out all the men that could fight. They were sitting ducks. And yet there was not one piece of opposition to it. Why? Because the people had learnt in their journey to fully trust and rely on God for every step of the way. That even though they crossed over and there was no barrier between them and the enemy, they knew to rely on what God said. And we have to do that too. It looks messy. It looks all sorts of things going on around us. But can we rely and trust in what God is doing? This was no walk in the park. Circumcision exposed the flesh. It was painful and it was messy. And God is leading us to our Gilgal. He's leading us to to his cross, for our cross where our hearts are being circumcised, where he requires total abandonment of the flesh and total reliance upon him. That's huge when you think about it. Gilgal means the rolling back of the flesh flesh to divide. What was significant was that God, it was God that named it, this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. How many understand that God's separating us from Egypt, separating us from the world, Depends on what's actually, what have we got our heart or our fingers attached to? God is saying, let it go. Are we totally reliant on him? And even though it exposed the flesh and had to be cut away, this is amazing. God allowed them time to heal. When God wants to do something in your heart, yes, it can be painful, and yes, it can be messy, but he does it because he loves us. He wants to have a real genuine relationship with you. And he does it so that we can be healed of those things that hold us back, that we're so attached to our hurts, our ups and downs, our you name it. The idols, everything, he wants to remove them so that he can fully come in and make us fully whole. And only he can do that. No ministry can do that. Can we allow him to do that? Sadly, I've seen so many people walk away when God has started to just touch something in them and they felt uncomfortable and they had to run, which is so sad because God wants to do it to all of us to bring us to that place of freedom. See, it wasn't about the number of men that Saul had to face. It wasn't about Samuel being late. It wasn't about any of those things. It was simply, could he rest and trust in him? And it's the same thing for us. When we see things happening and people going here, there and everywhere, can we trust in what he is doing amongst us. I just want to end with a personal testimony, really. You know, when I said that um, God had laid the rock on my heart and for how I'd prayed for three months and everything like that, and then God showed Sandra and I to come here. Well, I guess in my heart I thought, well, I'm coming here to help bring the change and all that sort of thing. What I didn't realize was God was bringing me here to dismantle me. You know, sometimes we think, oh, look, we, we've done ministry for this um, so many years. We've done this and we've done that. We've got a name. We've got a reputation. We've got this and all that sort of thing. And we can hold everything on that. And yet God says, let the whole lot go. Let me redefine you totally. And I found it hard. And yet I'm seeing God has been working so genuinely in people's lives. The number of people that are changing in this place is incredible. And it's not a, a fad or it's not a thing that happens one off like that. It's a whole f- continuous journey. I've been looking at Sandra in the way that over the last two years, she has changed completely and upside down. It's been incredible. Now, you could say that was just a, 
a one-off thing, but it wasn't. Two years later, she's growing. There's life flowing out of her. It's a genuine work of the Spirit, and I see it in so many, so many people in this place. Maybe you're struggling with that, like I did. I struggled with it. Why is God doing it to her and not to me? I'm being totally honest here. All sorts of things happen here. Sometimes jealousy rises up. Sometimes, you know, blockages that you put there yourself. And yet all God wants is your heart. We all are at different stages in this journey. But we shouldn't be comparing our hearts with each other. We should simply be allowing him and surrendering him and coming to that place of Gilgal and surrendering our life to him. And God's starting to do a deeper work in me now because I've been crying out to him. I remember one lady just a couple of weeks ago was in our place and she was in tears. And the thing is, she said she felt she came to the end of, a, end of herself. And you know what? That is so special because that's exactly where God wants us to be when we can't do anything ourselves. We can't change ourselves. We can't do anything. We can't even draw ourselves to him. It has to be him. But we can present ourselves and allow him to change us and to draw us to himself. And as a people, that's my heart's desire for you. And maybe you're struggling. Maybe the people that struggle the most are those that have been in ministry for a while, that have done things years ago. And God's saying, I want to redefine you. It was great what you did, but now I want you to let it go so I can redefine you and let it come. Because unless it dies, it cannot be resurrected. And he resurrects it totally differently to how you have it. And that was a huge challenge for me. Last year was a difficult year. But you know what? God is doing something deep in here now. Can we do the same? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the work, the deep and genuine work that you are doing in all of us. And no matter where we are along that journey, whether we've hardly started or whether we're well on the road, you care and yet you know every heart in this place. And I pray, Lord God, that there would be a real coming to know you more and more, that genuineness of your love. Because perfect love casts out all fear. Therefore, we do not need to hold on to things because he is able and more adequate than anything else. And I pray that as we come to our own Gilgal, as we lay our hearts down, that we become more and more totally reliant and dependent on you. And I just pray that you continue to work within us, that genuine work, that when the times of even greater shaking would come, this body of people would stand and truly say, He is my Lord. And everybody said,